Hey then. Um, when we were in Taiwan last year, my son, our son, loves this. Um, we tried. It's it's hard not to <laughs> not to eat pork, um, but we were up in the mountains where they really didn't speak very much English, and um, I used Google Translate to get. Um, Oh at least on the screen, something saying um, we would like rice and also <laughs> we would like chicken. And so um, the uh, person at a restaurant we ate in brought us something that didn't look that much like chicken, um, <laughs> partly because it had a snout. Um, <laughs> and, and a cloven hoof. <laughs> no, they don't have cloven hooves. Oh, they don't? No, 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 pigs don't. Oh. Um, or is it that they don't, they don't chew their cud? What is it that makes pigs not kosher? Is it that they don't have cloven hooves, or that they don't um, re that they don't um, ruminate? Because kosher is you have to have a cloven ho um, hoof, and you have to ruminate twice, right? Isn't that the definition of kosher meat? Well, I guess I should be asking this at Brandeis, <laughs> not, not at Brigham Young or wherever we are. Um, Notre Dame. <laughs> Notre Dame, yes. Um, Okay, so I will now tell you that's the definition of kosher meat. So they may have cloven hooves, but they don't regurgitate. Um, so she, um, so we basically said, is this chicken? And, um, and uh, this person brought together all the English she knew, which was a lot, um, it turned out. And she, she said very, you know, reassuringly, it's not chicken, it's pig. Um, <laughs> so um, it's beef. I'm good. Good. Um, all right, then. So songs and sonnets, a different kind of done. Um, what are you thinking? You were, re you were really looking forward to them, right? What? Oh, yeah, I like them a lot. Yeah. He's very clever, very funny. Yeah, so what do you like? Um, what do you like about them? I just, I like how he writes. I don't know. I just like how, I don't know, his metaphors and just, I don't know, he's funny. He's like... It's like the things he thinks of are pretty funny They're for reasons for people to sin, like the way he... <laughs> so you're thinking of the flea, yeah, for example. Yeah, so um, if you read, which it's sort of worth reading, um, partly because, again, um, it turns out that there's just not that much known about the order of the poems, but if you read the note on uh, the Songs and Sonnets on uh, page 88 of the Oxford... Um, what you'll see is that um, the flea um, in the 1635 edition, which is after Dunn dies, is placed first, um, although it was um, in an earlier edition, 1633, it wasn't. So um, maybe Dunn, maybe someone else puts it first. Um, but other than that, people really don't know when these poems were written. Um, they were, they some of them circulated in manuscript. Uh, they were around. Dunn obviously really liked writing them. The basic idea that most people have, which is almost certainly not true because um, it's too neat, um, is that as a young man, Dunn just wrote lots of poems about um, how you should have sex with him. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> Then he got religion and wrote lots of poems about, um, well, one of them, a holy sonnet that we will look at, but um, haven't um, looked at yet, the one that begins, batter my heart, three-person God. Um, essentially, they take the form of why God should have sex with him. Um, so, no, that, 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 anyone know how that sonnet ends? 
<laughs> Anyone not chewing beef um, <laughs> know how that sonnet ends? Well, you're not chewing beef anymore. With an appeal to ravish him. Yes. Um, <clears throat> um, I am not chaste unless thou ravish me. Mm. So he says to God, basically, the way to make me chaste, um, the way to make me um, not sexually active is for you to take me, to ravish <laughs> me. Um, so that's um, a very neat um, uh, division of Dunn's life into two periods. Um, what doesn't make sense about it, or what makes too much sense about it, is that Dunn is saying that he's full of um, contradiction and contrast and con contrariety, o to vex me, contraries meet, in one. Um, and that he's always, if above all these, uh, my sins abound. Um, that sense of sinfulness in him has to, on some very, very basic level, um, be what everyone's sense of sinfulness is, which is something to do with sexuality. Um, sex and sin um, go together. And um, so that doesn't mean that Dunn is um, writing highly sexualized poems about um, people he would like to sleep with. Um, through the end, um, but it doesn't mean he isn't. And, but it also doesn't mean that those poems are actually about sex. They may be other ways of writing about sin. It appears to be the case that Dunn was happily though difficultly married. Um, that is um, the situation. Um, uh, he, get, he got married in secret. His father-in-law was very unhappy about it. Um, he, he thought that his father-in-law thought that he was beneath um, his daughter. And, um, but they loved each other. And some of the most beautiful poems, like Valediction, Forbidding Mourning, um, are poems where that's um, very clear. Um, but that does, again, that doesn't mean that you should put these poems in a biographical order. Um, they're what Dunn is, um, is a poet who is really interested in the wildness of the human mind. Um, and I think that wildness is something that you see everywhere. And he's just totally um, surprisingly open about it. Um, he is um, exploring the wildness of the human mind in his poems, in his sermons, in his devotions upon emergent occasions. And um, at different moments, he will explore it differently and in different modes. Um, so the, the basic the take home here is that you don't have to see a progression. You can, but needn't see a progression in the kinds of poetry that Dunn writes. And I actually think that those poems are richer if you see them all as by Dunn um, rather than by someone who is changing the kind of person he is um, as he gets religion or becomes more mature or whatever. Um, he's interested, as I say, in the, in the wild variety of um, human desire and human um, um, moods. One place that you can see it, I think, is um, where you know we've seen him talk about it um, in um, Ode of Vex Me, Contraries Meet in one. But if you just look at, um, oh, no, I'm not finding it. Um, in the, uh, oh, yeah, um, in Woman's Constancy, which is one of several poems um, about whether woman, women are constant or not. 
Um, and um, here he's very direct, and I think this is a useful poem um, not to get overly um, censorious about uh, about Dunn's hypocrisy. That is, it's kind of easy to read Dunn as a hypocrite um, because of um, his demands, as in the as in go and catch a falling star, or his lamentation that women aren't constant. Um, something that we saw also in the um, paradoxes. Um, but I think that um, it's not so much that Dunn is a hypocrite. I think he's, he's quite the opposite of a hypocrite. It's that he's interested in hypocrisy itself as um, a human um, instinct, um, the instinct to be a hypocrite. And so he represents that. He represents his own instinct to be a hypocrite because he's representing all of his instincts. He's not hiding anything. Um, someone want to read Woman's Constancy? This is page 91 of the um, Oxford. Yes. Um, Tammy. Nada has loved me one whole day. Tomorrow when thou leaves Okay, thank you. Great. Um, so, um, one thing to notice here, um, and something that we'll see a lot in Dunn, is that there's argumentation going on. And that the way um, that the very fact that you get contradiction and um, contraries in Dunn um, means that he's weighing different ways of looking at the same thing, partly because he's weighing different reactions, different desires, different ways to um, um, respond to situations. So again, if you think of at the round or its imagined corners, the octet is um, let the um, last judgment be now, and the sesset is actually not so much. Um, and um, if you think of the flea, which we will look at because it's just so wonderful, um, that's an argument. Here's why you should sleep with me. Um, and it's an argument in which um, his responses to what she does in the course of the poem um, show that he's arguing with her. But he's also doing something else that, that um, good arguers do, that persuasive arguers do, that he does in his sermons as well, that he does in the paradoxes as well, which is to anticipate objections. Um, and what's really good about writing those kinds of poems which anticipate objections is that even though they have single speakers, um, he's the one who is, um, or some speaker in each poem is doing the speaking, um, we can tell what the other side of that argument is. There's back and forth, there's conflict within the poems. Um, 
So here, what's the situation? Now thou hast loved me one whole day. Um, so what's happened? We slept together. Okay, how do we know that? Because, well, I mean, loved is one clue, but also <laughs> if it's a new day. Uh-huh, yeah, so in the second line, tomorrow when thou leavest, what wilt thou say? So we can get some quick backstory here, which is that um, basically there was some um, dance of seduction um, between them, and then they went to bed together. One whole day means it's now nighttime. Um, and um, when will she leave? The next day. So nighttime and um, having um, loved each other. Um, now they're going to sleep, and in the morning she'll leave. Um, the fact that she's the one who's going to leave is also an interesting part of the backstory. That is, she comes to him. It's not that he goes to her. She comes to him and spends the night with him. Um, so what will you say tomorrow? So what are the possibilities? Wilt thou then antedate some new made vow? Um, so what does that mean? What may she do the next day? <clears throat> S say it again. Like backdate. Backdate what? The vow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So she had some obligation that she forgot to mention before. Or yeah. Yeah. Um, so basically, it's oh my god, look at the time. <laughs> I forgot that I promised. Um, so again, there's um, we know what that means. The idea of antedating a vow is to say, oh, I just remembered a previous engagement. Um, what's great about this is that no one has really said this in a poem before, that that's what people do. But he's expecting us to recognize this as something that people do. Um, that is, that they just remembered something that, in fact, they just invented. Um, and in this case, the vow would also be a vow to someone else, let's say. That is, um, you are now interested in someone else, and you say, you know, I really shouldn't have done that. I've been going out with this person the whole time, even if she hasn't. So wilt thou then antedate some new made vow? Or what's the other possibility? What's another possibility? Or say that now we're not just those persons which we were. So what's that argument? She doesn't feel it anymore, maybe? All right, so she doesn't feel it anymore. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I read it like now there's something more, like now we're not just like now there's some like a new love blossoming between them and we're not just merely the people we were last night. Okay, so you want this to be a um a, a good moment. You want it to be a good moment. Um but what's her argument? Zach. Well, last night we were intoxicated with love or just intoxicated and now we're back to who we normally are and not the people we were last night. Okay, so we're, yeah, we're definitely not the people we were last night. We're not just those persons which we were. Um, if he were writing this poem, and if he were to say some, I mean, if, if, if this were his argument, um, what would he be saying? That is, if he were saying, you know, when I swore that I would love you forever, um, I was a different person from what I am now. Um, what would, how would that argument work? It's a lame one, but how would it work? So I have a quick yeah. question. 
the word just here, it means, it doesn't mean it the way we would use it now, or one of the possibilities. I'm asking you. It means exactly, doesn't it? Yeah. As yes. opposed to, like, the Justin when Gatsby says it was just personal. Yes. Yeah. It doesn't mean merely. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so I think I think maybe um, um, you were you were seeing it as merely as we're not just those persons that we were, but we're something deeper. And um, but he's actually saying something. Um, uh, well, we're you know we're we've changed. We are not exactly what we were. The change may seem somewhat imperceptible, but it's real. It's really happened. One reason it's really happened is they've had sex with each other. So one huge difference between um, the day before and the day now is the day before they were people who had not had sex with each other, and now they are people who have had sex with each other. There's actually a neat philosophical concept um, that I came upon recently called Cambridge Change, um, anyone know what it is? I didn't think so. Um, so if you say something like um, numbers are unchanging, this is an example of it. Um, um, the number two is the number two from the beginning of time and before the creation of the world until the end of the universe. The number two is simply the number two. Um, and that's unchangeable. That's platonic. It cannot possibly change. Um, someone can argue, well, actually, that isn't true. Um, the number two does change because there was a time when the number two was the rate of exchange between pounds and dollars. But now the number two is not the rate of exchange between pounds and dollars because it's actually a dollar sixty. It's a, it's actually a dollar sixty-two per pound, rather than two dollars per pound. Um, so since the rate of exchange between pounds and dollars is no longer number two, the number two has changed. It's no longer the rate that, of exchange. That just depends on how you define number. Well, it or depends on how you define change. Or define change. Or yeah, what it means for yeah, something yeah. to change. So it's not saying anything different than the people saying number They're just using different change. Yeah, but so the idea in Cambridge change is it's a trick. Um, by which you can say nothing is permanent because everything can change, even the number two can change. So if, if a number can change, everything can change. Um, or, you know, two is the age that I used to be, but now I'm 35, so two has changed. Um, so um, that is a sophistic argument. If you say that, um, if, if that's an argument, I mean, I think that's what you're saying, Daniel, that, that um, to say that that's a change in the number two is sophistry. Um, it's a change in our relationship to two, but it's not a change in the thing that we are relating to. Um, so sophistries always mean something like an argument in bad faith because you don't have an argument in good faith that you can make. If there were an argument you could make in good faith, that would be fine. Do you remember what Benedict says about why um, he really hasn't contradicted himself when he says um, that he will die a bachelor in um, Much Ado About Nothing? Er, I said, God, I can ask for um, oh, that he had not lit when I said uh, when I said I would die a bachelor. I did not dream I would live a married man. <laughs> live to be a married live man. Live to be a married man. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I did say that, but it's <coughs> it's not that I changed my mind about marriage. You shouldn't think that. It's just I didn't think I would live this long, <laughs> live long enough to be a married man. 
But of course, he has changed his mind about marriage. He decides he's, um, that marriage is actually okay. Um, so a sophistic argument, Cambridge change, um, you know, you'll probably have to use it at some point in your life um, <laughs> to get out of some kind of trouble, and it probably won't work. Um, but um, it's, if you don't have anything better, go for Cambridge change. Um, and that's essentially what he's now saying she may do the next day. Um, that is to say, well, the people we were when we met yesterday were people who hadn't slept with each other, but now we're different people because we're now people who have slept with each other. Um, and because we are not the persons which we were, um, we're not those persons made vows, but we're different people. And so um, there's nothing wrong now. We're not breaking a vow by leaving. Um, but now what we're getting, actually, is that they have made vows to each other. This is very artfully done on Dunn's part. That's a pun, as you know, that he makes. Um, when thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I am more. Um, and um, it's a pun that he's making on his name as well as his, as well as his wife's name. Um, but the, um, what is really artful about this, this is what Justy picked up on, is that when I ask, now thou hast loved me one whole day, what does that mean? Um, Justy immediately gave the second line meaning of it, that is that she's leaving tomorrow, so they've had sex with each other. But the first line doesn't say that. The first line could be, you know, oh, we met in the garden this morning and we spent the day together talking virtuously of uh, philosophy and things, but realized we were in love with each other, and now we've been in love a whole day, but it really matters. Um, but no, it turns out in the second line tells us that what love there meant is something like, um, what's a Will Ferrell Saturday Night Live routine? Um, we are Professor Virginia... We have Professor Roger in Virginia. Um, oh, yeah, but it's not Will Ferrell. It's not Will Ferrell? No. In the, they're in the hot tub. Yeah, yeah. The hot tub scene. Oh, that one's so funny. It's Will Ferrell. It is Will it Ferrell. Is Will Ferrell. It is so funny. I was watching it last night. You were watching it last <laughs> yeah. night? So you can do it. No, I can't. Yes. They started um, laughing, though. I can't yes. remember what they said. We are lovers. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, so what, it mean, what, what they mean when they... Remember when you loved me under the moonlight in the Sonoran Desert? <laughs> um, so that's what it turns out love means here, which is like also, that's kind of great, a full day. Um, so the second line tells you that what the word loved means in the first line is um, we've been having passionate, um, um, a passionate relationship for a whole day. And, now, and tomorrow when thou leavest, so now we find out she's going to, spend the night, what wilt thou say? Wilt thou then antedate some new made vow? That is, will you say there was, you're now making a new vow, but saying that it's older. Older than what? Well, older than the vow you made to me today. So what was that vow? Oh, that she'd stay? Yeah, yeah, that this is real. Um, that is, Meatloaf says, I'll love you to the end of time. Um, <laughs> some of you know that song. But you all know Meatloaf from Fight Club, right? Yeah. Rocky so you know that he also has these famous songs? Okay. Um, Wilt thou then antedate some new-made vow? That is, uh, now make a new vow, but say it was older than the vow you made to me. So we're getting something about what they did today. 
which is they said, yeah, this is real, this is the real thing, I really care about you. Um, although she's the one saying to him, I really care about you. It's almost as though she's um, the one who is, who is making these claims in order to seduce him. Or say that now we're not just those persons which we were, so now for sure we know that um, in order to get out of a vow that they have made, she has to say, yeah, the vows are there, but we're not the people who made those vows. Um, or that oaths made in reverential fear, that is, yeah, we made oaths, so now we know for sure that they swore something to each other, or that oaths made in reverential fear of love and his wrath, any may forswear. So that if you make an oath in reverential fear of love, what does that mean? Cupid. Cupid, yeah, good. Justy? It doesn't count, but there's also a kind of contradiction there because there's reverential fear, which is to say that you really are revering the God of love um, the way when you make any kind of oath, you should do it in reverential fear of God's punishing you for breaking an oath. Um, that's why um, you're, in fact, not supposed to make oaths. Um, but uh, that oaths made in reverential fear of love and his wrath, any may forswear. That is, but if you're, if love is forcing you to take those oaths because he will show wrath if you don't, and that's why you took those oaths, well, what wrath will love show? How will love show wrath if you don't take an oath? You have an idea. You can get dumped. Okay, yeah. So that love's wrath will be if you don't um, take this oath, um, he, may, he may not have sex with you, um, and that will feel to you like anger and punishment on the part of love. So, And we know, we'll look at another poem in a minute, where love does show anger. So that what you're going to argue if you tease this out is something like, well, yeah, I swore that I would love you forever, but that's because if I didn't swear that I would love you forever, you wouldn't have slept with me. And that would have been a really unfortunate punishment for me to undergo. So I did it out of fear that you wouldn't sleep with me. Um, that's probably simplifying a little bit too much, but that's um, essentially what he's saying. Um, so any may forswear such oaths. If you're forced to, to um, take an oath out of fear, um, legally, morally, theologically, um, you're allowed to forswear it. At least that's the argument. Some people think that's not true, um, that any oath that you make, even if you're forced to make it, you have to keep. But that's what she is going to argue. Um, or another argument, as true deaths, true marriages untie... So, lovers' contracts, images of those, bind, but till sleep, death's image them unloose. So what's the argument there? So when you get married, you make an oath when you die, they dissolve. So because death is similar to sleep, after they fell asleep, it's gone. Okay, and what's a lover's contract? Giving yourself to someone else. <laughs> no, I mean like, I don't know. No, no, no. Just in so he, there's an analogy here, and the analogy is, um, 
there's true death is the true marriage as what is to what? Right, as sleep is to a lover's contract. Mm -hmm. So that's the analogy. Mm -hmm. And because true deaths untie true marriages, so sleep unties a lover's contract. Um, Why? Because sleep is to death what sex, what one day's worth of sex is to a marriage. And so the analogy makes perfect sense, and therefore there's no reason for you, you will say, to keep your vow. Did you want to say anything? Oh, no, I was stretching my wrist, but I do think that's a good way to get out of things after this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very slept, that's it. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, we, I mean, we aim to be helpful. Um, <laughs> so. Oh, my God. But I learned in <laughs> So, um, and does anyone know what the joke in the word death is there? Yeah, because isn't like le petit mort? Like yeah. So that's what it's called now is la petite mort, which is um, the little death, which is um, a French term for orgasm. Um, But back really up until the beginning of the 20th century, um, we don't really have this in English anymore, but but, um, it's true until the beginning of the the 20th century, um, that to die is um, slang for to have sex. Um, Have orgasm. No, actually, have sex really? too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Those dying. Ge- so Yeats talks about um, the young in one another's arms. Those dying generations at their song, and what that means is they're generations that are having sex with each other. Unlike me, um, Yeats, an old man. Um, that's in Sailing to Byzantium, um, and um, yeah, it probably um, suggests orgasm. That is um, because you're spending yourself. Um, you can see how. Um, it would have to do with um, it taking some time before you come back to life. Um, but it's, um, it can also more generally mean to have sex. Um, it, I think it, it probably doesn't matter, but um, he's uh, in the canonization, he has the line, we are tapers too, and at our own cost die. Um, that is, we tape, we're like candles burning down. Um, and the light that we're shedding is at our own cost, but it's also at our own cost we have sex with each other. So um, as true deaths, true marriages untie, that is um, deaths which are actual deaths, um, so um, lovers' contracts, images of those, so what's the contract? Yeah, it's the, it's the actual having of sex. Maybe it is the orgasm. Um, the actual having of the orgasm. Um, and whatever it is that they shouted in the course of orgasm. Um, but then you fall asleep, so it doesn't matter. No, done is not, I mean, those of you who took 18th century poetry know that done is not the dirtiest um, poet. But um, he's, he's certainly on the, in the dirtier half of things. Um, so as true deaths, true marriages untie. So lovers' contracts, images of those, images of death, or images of marriage. That's um, the subtle pun there. Um, bind but till sleep, death's images them unloose. So do you see how that works? That is, so lovers' contracts, images of those, of what? What's the those referring to? True marriage. True marriages, although 
Um, to, interestingly, grammatically, you would have to say these. When you have um, two possible antecedents um, in a sentence like this, these means the latter and those means the former. Um, so now done does have to rhyme. Um, although what's he rhyming those with? Unloose. Yeah, so these really isn't going to work to rhyme with unloose. Those might. Um, he does have to rhyme. Um, but lovers' contracts could be images <coughs> of deaths. Because then the idea would be, yeah, they are. That's what it means um, to die um, in the sexual sense of die. So lovers' contracts, images of deaths rather than images of marriages, bind but till sleep. That would be the image of death. So, um, or that would be another image of death. Bind but till sleep, death's image them on loose. So what does the word on loose there mean? Become undone, like, become undone. Yeah. yes. Go away. Yeah. yeah, what does it mean in the most, um, as an image? They, they are not in each other anymore. Yeah. <laughs> not, you know what I mean. Or, or even just They're not just not that into each other anymore, yeah. Literally, just though. Yeah. Yeah, that was what I was okay, going to so say. I meant, I meant like, emotionally, like, drifting. Yeah, but they're also no longer oh, entangled meant, in each other. Yes. <laughs> so, um, sleep... They fall asleep, and they're no longer entangled in each other. They roll away from each other. Um, or maybe here's what you'll do. Your own end to justify for having purpose change, purposed change, and falsehood, you can have no way but falsehood to be true. Um, so another possibility, in order to justify what you're going to do, because you always wanted to change, um, you always wanted to be false to me. Um, to be true to yourself, you have to be true to your desire to have sex with me and then go away. Um, you always wanted this to be a one-night stand. Um, that was what you were looking forward to, was a one-night stand. And so the way to be true to yourself and to me, and therefore not false to any man, is to make sure it really is just a one-night stand. Otherwise, you wouldn't be being true to yourself. Even if it did mean something more. Yeah, you, unfortunately, um, you would be untrue to yourself if you stayed with me. Mm -hmm. So, much as you would want to, well, you just can't. Um, vain lunatic, yeah. he then says to her. Um, so, you know, that's just crazy. Uh, why else lunatic? What is, do people know what the word lunatic comes from? Derives from the moon. Derives from the moon. Right, so lunatics are crazy during the full moon, um, but also that they are changeable as the moon. That is, um, they're inconsistent with each other because they're always changing as the moon is. That seems to be what um, Dunn is pushing on that idea of the moon is constantly changing. Vain lunatic, um, so, but it's also like, yeah, you're crazy, that's not going to work. Against these scapes, I could dispute. And conquer if I would. I could argue against you. So you have all these ideas, but I have arguments against them all. I could show that you're wrong, which I abstain to do, because I'm such a good guy. Why? For by tomorrow, I may think so too. So everybody's happy. Um, 
I know you're going to want to turn away from me. Now, you could ask, is that really true? That is, to what extent is he putting words in her mouth to make sure that she gets that the fun of this is that it's a one-night stand and to prevent her from thinking, wow, this is really great, we should um, get together. Um, those are questions he wants to raise. Those are questions that are coming up as well. Let's look at the indifferent, which um, works on a somewhat similar paradox um, on page 93 of the Oxford. <coughs> Um, indifferent there, meaning um, it's all good. Uh, there's nothing, you know, you, it, it, it's whatever you want. Um, doesn't matter to me. It's all good. Um, someone want to read it? Justy? Indifferent. I can love both fair and brown, her whom abundance melts and her, her whom want betrays, her who loves loneliness best, and her who masks and plays, her whom the country formed, and whom the town, her who believes, and her who tries, her who still weeps with spongy eyes, and her who is dry cork and never cries. I can love her, and her, and you, and you. I can love any, so she be not true. Will no other vice content you? Will it not serve your turn to do as did your mother's? Or have you all old vices spent and now would find out others? Or doth a fear that men are true torment you? Oh, we are not. Be not you so. Let me and do you twenty know. Rob me, but bind me not, and not let me go and let me go. Must I, who came to travel through you, grow your fixed subject because you are true? Venus heard me sigh this song, and by love's sweetest part, variety she swore. She heard not this till now, and that it should be so no more. She went, examined, and returned ere long, and said, Alas, some two or three poor heretics in love there be, which think to establish dangerous constancy. But I have told them, since you will be true, you shall be true to them who are false to you. Um, okay, so what's the um, joke here? He wants a woman who's going to be unfaithful. Yeah. He really wants a woman who's going to be unfaithful. Um, he really doesn't want a woman who, who's going to be faithful. Um, that's also a joke from Shakespeare. Uh, there's a similar moment in As You Like It where um, Touchstone uh, says to Audrey, um, I really hope you're a slut. Uh, and for two reasons. One, because then you might sleep with me. Um, like right away, and two, because then um, you won't expect me to stay with you afterwards. Um, so um, here you're getting some sense of him. Whatever this is, this isn't hypocritical. Um, he can love any kind of woman, both fair and brown, both blonde and brunette. Um, her whom abundance melts, what does that mean? Rich. Um, the rich and... Um, and um, those with the leisure and the desire and the ability to take pleasure and who are willing to do it at any time. And her whom want betrays. Who's that? Austere. Um, not austere. Poor. And how, are, how is she betrayed by want? She can't have what she wants. Well. Or it taunts her? No, it's actually a kind of grim moment and not that grim a poem. And gone to... Oh, she wants to be able to love someone. No. 
No, yeah. She's like a sexualized lower class woman. Yeah. Uh, Namely a... A whore. A prostitute. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah. She who... Her who has to um, have sex with people that she may not want to have sex with in order to survive. Um, In a 19th century novel, this would be a very typical figure in a 19th century novel. So, yeah, he can have sex with her, too. Um, There you can be a little bit troubled by the narrator. Um, Her who loves loneliness best, um, so a woman who really likes solitude, and her who masks and plays, a woman who likes to party. Her whom the country formed and whom the town, whether from the country or town. Her who believes, that is, will believe um, anything. And her who tries, that is, is skeptical of all things. Her who still weeps with spongy eyes, and her who is dry cork and never cries. Um, they're all good. I can love her and her, and you and you, you readers of this poem. Um, I can love any, so she be not true. Um, that would be the only thing that would be wrong, is if um, she were faithful. That's a real vice. Well, no other vice content you. There's a world full of vices. Why do you have to be true? Um, will no other vice content you? Will it serve your turn to do as did your mother's? Can't you be like your mother's who did what? Cheated on <laughs> Yeah, who slept around. <laughs> Can't you just be like your mother's? Um, I know that they've slept around. He's also <laughs> implying. Um, what's wrong with that? Um, or have you all, have you all old vices spent and now would find out others. Are you just that much of a sybarite, that much of um, um, a, a embracer of vice that you want them all? Or are you afraid that men are true? <laughs> or does the fear that men are true torment you? Are you trying to get us back <laughs> for being true to you? Don't worry. <laughs> oh, we are not. <laughs> Be not you so. Let me and do you twenty no. Rob me, but bind me not, and let me go. So what does that mean? Uh, don't, don't buy, don't make me be in a single relationship with one person. Like, uh-huh. Go around. Yeah, and literally, it's you know what you would say to someone robbing you. Um, you know, if a highwayman stopped you, is yeah, take the money, but don't tie me up. Um, so rob, how would he be robbed? Well, um, just like take me. Like, yeah, take me, basically. Um, take my substance. Take um, what is valuable in me. Um, Shakespeare calls this the expense of spirit. That is, take what I will expend for you. Um, rob me, but buy me not, and let me go. Must I, who came to travel, thorough you? Um, so I was traveling because I wanted to see you, and now you're going to rob me because you're actually going to be the highwayman who robs me on my travels. But I, who came to travel thorough you, must I grow your fixed subject because you are true? I was traveling. I was just going through your land. Do I have to now become your, um, um, your subject? Um, do you, will you now become my ruler? Does that really have to happen? So, so this all then turns out to have been a song that he's sighing. And Venus, the goddess of love, hears this. And she's outraged. 
<laughs> Venus heard me sigh this song, and by love's sweetest part, variety, she swore. So the sweetest part of love is variety, and Venus, who um, knew that, swore by love's sweetest part. She heard not this till now. Like, I cannot believe this, that there seem to be women who are being faithful. That's really, really outrageous, says the <laughs> goddess of love. Um, so again, what kind of love is it? Well, it's love as um, sexual act. It's love as in falling in love far and wide. Um, she heard not this till now, and that it should be no more. Should be so no more. She went, examined, and returned here long. So she looks around and she says, "Oh my God, there are some women who are faithful. I just can't believe it." And said, uh, two or three." And said, "Alas." Some two or three poor heretics in love there be. So um, they're heretical to what? Variety. To variety. To variety, yeah. Um, that's not what love is. Um, so they are breaking faith with love. That's what it means to be um, a heretic. It's to go against the true faith. Um, so um, the paradox here then is that the true faith of love is not being faithful to one person. So some two or three poor heretics in love there be who think to establish dangerous constancy. Um, again, the joke would be that there would be dangerous inconstancy. That's what danger is. But oh my god, they're going to establish a dangerous constancy. Why is that dangerous? No one else is going to be true, so you should expect to be screwed over. Well, um, yeah, but what's it, it's, what is the danger, what's the general danger of constancy to Venus? They're going to miss out on what love actually is. Okay, so it's dangerous to them because they'll miss out on what love actually is. What is it to her? What's um, sort of is heretical to her power and her decrees. Yeah, that is that she's the goddess of love. But if people start being constant to each other, that's going to be a danger to love itself. So the definition of love here is, is variety, is constant um, refreshment and renewal. Um, and the um, danger is to um, Venus herself. So the kind of serious um, point within the midst of this poem is that constancy and love don't go together. Um, Eros, the mischief maker. Eros, as Freud calls him. Eros, him in this case, um, that is Cupid, Eros, the mischief maker. And for Freud, that's what the life instinct is, um, is Eros making mischief. And if Eros stops making mis uh, mischief, that's dangerous. But I have told them, she says, since you will be true, she says to these women, okay, you shall be true to them who are false to you. Um, so your punishment will be more of the same. Yay. Um, why does she tell them this? But I have told them. To teach them a lesson. To teach them a lesson. Um, Get them ready for done. Sorry? <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. Get ready for done. Um, fine, you can be true to him. But also, it, I think it means something like, um, I warned them off this silly idea they had. Um, it's not like you're going to find someone true to you. So if you're going to be true, you're going to be true to them who will be false to you. Um, so don't do it. Um, so that solves that problem. Um, and Dunn is just as glad about it. 
Okay, let's go look at the flea, um, the first of the 1635 version of um, the Songs and Sonnets. So, who's he talking to? Woman. This woman who has or has not slept with him. Has not. Yeah, he can't believe it. Um, so, who wants to read it? Yes. Coming up. <laughs> <laughs> Did he have a practice law, or was he just wasn't he trained as a? Yeah, he was, um, but he did no, he didn't practice. Um, so <laughs> you, you see this, it, <laughs> yes. So you you see this as as uh, legal chicanery. Um, I wonder whether it really is or not. Um, the first and obvious question is, um, how sexy a poem is this? Can be very sexy or very gross. Yeah, um, and I think the first—it's—it's it's not the first thing that most people would think. As you know, uh, I am a French seducer. Marc um, Lazisli, you know, Pepe Le Fou maybe, um, but generally, it's—it's—it's it's, it's not the suavest way of going about trying to seduce someone. One wouldn't think, um, but. Uh, there is, again, um, as there kind of always has been done, um, a serious part of the poem. In this case, um, the argument that he's making might in some ways be hard to answer. Um, and the argument looks just so outrageous that um, the idea that this is actually a hard argument to answer is the last thing on your mind. Um, some of you may know that John Burt wrote her response. Um, you should ask him about it, or I'll ask him whether I can um, bring it in. But it's, uh, it's pretty funny, um, her response to him. Um, but um, part of the question asked about this poem, and this is um, part of Dunn's um, real brilliance, kind, kind of pyrotechnical brilliance, at um, getting different kinds of voices to overlay each other in the way he presents himself. 
um, is that if you imagine this is actually meant um, by a by a intelligent person to be seductive, um, what kind of person is it? What what could make this poem seductive? You said you could see it as seductive. What could make it uh, seductive? Um, because now, well, he's mentioning sex when he says, like, you haven't even lost your maidenhead, but our blood is mingled. Uh -huh. um, he says this is even more than marriage because it's because we're so mingled that even our blood is mingled. Yeah. But I guess, I guess the question is, what is he expecting her, if he really wants to have sex with her, let's say that this is genuinely a poem, which is supposed to make him sexually desirable. And it's hard to believe that, that most of these poems aren't. That is the kind of cleverness, the kind of wit that um, he's displaying, the quickness of that wit, the unexpectedness of that wit. Um, what you're getting here is you know, a, a, a really dazzling display, as, as you're saying, Han, a really dazzling display of, um, of his ability to improvise, or at least to look like he's improvising. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Like, if I were to ever fall for this, I'd be like, "Wow, all right, that was pretty impressive. Like, that was good. Uh -huh. All right, I guess you're right too." So. <laughs> yeah, but if you were to fall for it, what would you be falling for? His, his like personality, not for what he said, but for yeah. being so clever and so. Yeah, I mean, I think the point is that that we laugh at this poem, and if you were to fall for it, you'd fall for it because it's funny, yeah. um, not because the argument makes sense. <laughs> Um, it's not, oh, you're right, I had, I'd forgotten that I got bit by a flea, um, and, you know, that certainly put me in a sexy mood, <laughs> um, the fact that this flea bit me, um, but it would be more like, um, oh, John, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as it were, yeah, no, that's right, and there's a sense in which, um, he's treating her as an equal, and he does that consistently, in these poems. That is that um, if you want to go to bed with me, it's not because I'm going to seduce you by seeming to be um, a kind of person who, um, uh, who is the ideal um, of the person that you would fall in love with, but it's rather, um, this is pretty funny, and I think you'll think so too, and um, that's why we should go to bed. Um, so it's a way of um, doing something that you generally don't get in love poetry. That is usually what you get. Um, there's actually a, a, a famous um, uh, history of poetry argument that the great linguist Roman Jakobson made, um, which is that he was looking at some of Pushkin's sonnets to the woman Anna, something that um, Pushkin was um, desperately in love with. And those sonnets are just highly idealizing. Um, they're just, you know, oh, you're the stars, you're the moon, whatever. Um, and then Pushkin's journals were published uh, 150 years later. And at the same time he's writing the, the sonnets in his journals, he's saying, by the grace of God, I took her last night. Um, <laughs> and it turns out, you know, that he's writing these highly idealizing sonnets, but also having lots of sex with her, which he's describing in some detail, in journals not meant for publication. And Jakobsen says, um, it's not, we're tempted to think that the sonnets um, are false poetic idealizations of how he felt like her and the journals are really what he did feel about her, which is, um, you know, that he liked their activities together. He said, but you have to consider that in the 20th century, um, the writing might well have gone the other way. 
that is, that what he might have published are the descriptions um, in the journals and what he might have kept private to himself as too embarrassing are these idealizing poems that he's writing about her. Um, and so the idea that um, um, there is this thing which is poetic idealization and generally um, the history of uh, you could at least say the history of love poetry from the troubadours onward or onward for a while is um, that whatever the poet really thinks um, he most of the time he um, is going to represent himself in this highly idealizing you know I'm different from all those other men because I believe in love as something that um, is transcendent and lasts forever and is real and you can tell what a sensitive and creative soul I am from the fact that I'm writing this poem so you know although sleeping with each other isn't my main goal um, <laughs> you know you might nevertheless feel overcome by a desire that I myself feel overcome to mingle our souls by mingling our bodies. Um, and Dunn does write poems which parody that. Um, and, um, but the truth is, yeah, um, he wants to have sex with her. Um, but what Dunn is basically saying is we're both experienced and what I'm going to do is parody an argument for why... Um, if we have sex with each other, it's just like meeting God. Um, and with the idea that you'll fall in love with my personality, or that at least you'll like me enough to say, yeah, that guy's pretty funny. It, uh, we could have a fun night together. Um, and he just does that by parodying love poetry rather than writing it. Um, and um, so that's clearly what he's doing here. It's not like he's an idiot for thinking that this poem will work. Um, it's precisely that he's not an idiot um, and that he's kind of pretending that um, it would be fun to imagine an idiotic argument, but then look what I can do with that argument. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering, like... Jamie, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, were Dunn's views on women kind of, like, progressive for the time? Because I feel like in some ways he's very misogynistic and in other ways he's... Yeah, and, and I think that that's... Um, it's hard to tell. But I think I would say they are progressive for the time. And I would say that um, a question to ask yourself is whether he's misogynistic or whether he's misanthropic. Um, that is to say, whether he thinks, um, w whether what he's doing is crediting women with being as bad as anyone else. Um, so whether what he says that looks like it's an insult um, to one sex is simply, uh, yeah, you guys are just like men. Um, and so any insult to women is also an, insu is also an insult to men. Um, but do you see this particular poem as misogynistic or progressive no, or both? No, this one is more progressive. Okay. So mark but this flea. So check this flea out. And again, we're going <laughs> to capture, uh, we're going we're gonna to get the backstory as we go through this poem. But um, it's dramatic. They're there. He's talking to her. We're reading a poem, but it's not a poem for reading unlike a whole lot of love poetry. Um, it's a poem in which we're supposed to imagine that it's, it's a kind of drama put into three stanzas. Mark, but this flea. So we know there are three beings there, him, her, and a flea, yes. Mark, but this flea, and mark in this how little that which thou deniest me is, because the flea is tiny, 
and um, whatever a flea does, it can't be very important. It sucked me first and now sucks thee. Um, so that's a pretty graphic word, sucks there, um, and is meant to be. That is, it's not, oh yeah, in the 17th century they talked about um, fleas sucking, where we would talk about fleas biting. Um, no, it's got the same kind of resonances and overtones that it would have in the 21st century. It sucked me first, and now sucks thee. And in this flea, our two bloods mingled be. Why? Yeah, yeah, so their blood, their blood is combined in the flea. Thou knowest that this cannot be said a sin or shame or loss of maidenhead. So you haven't lost your virginity because a flea bit you. Um, it's not sin, it's not shame, it's not loss of maidenhead, even though our bloods have mingled. Yet this enjoys before it woo. What does that mean? Will you enjoy the woman's essence before, without courting her? Like, you know. Yeah, yeah. Have to buy yeah. Her dinner. Yeah, yeah did <laughs> exactly. Um, it enjoys before it woo. No, no need to um, do any courtship. Um, it just goes and enjoys her, um, and that's okay, right? Um, so that's what he's saying here. Look at this flea. It enjoys before it woo and pampered swells with one blood made of two. So what's the flea being compared to there? A pregnant woman? Um, I don't think it's the way a pregnant woman swells up. A penis? Yes. Oh, no. oh. <laughs> I was going to say that. A penis? And then said, oh. I was, was going to say that. I thought I was thinking too. And the guy, and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just interject? I, yes. I support the pregnancy interpretation. This is one blood made of two. Yeah. Swell with one blood made As of two. Swells. Yeah, okay. But we're assuming the flea, I don't know, it could be, I think it's a dude flea if gender, if fleas were. <laughs> well, it, or it's both. I mean, the point is that yeah. he wants the flea to represent them both. So I think it's both pregnancy and um, two messins. Um, yeah, it's sort of turning the flea into the offspring. Yeah. The two bloods mingle and you've got a being. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, but also, but you're saying um, a pregnant person with the blood within the flea, um, which is, can be the result of sex, um, but also a penis, um, because that's the combination of all those things um, <laughs> within the image of the flea. Um, who knew? But yes. Um, so it's, it swells with one blood made of two. It's pampered. Um, so that's part of the idea of it being like a penis. Um, and swells with one blood made of two. To make that a penis, it has to be with his blood as well as um, with the idea of her. So it's one blood, but it's made of the idea of two people. And this, alas, is more than we would do. Um, so there's this flea swelling up. Um, me too, but more than your willing to go for. Um, so then there's a blank space, and then oh, stay. So what's she about to do? <laughs> yeah. This flea. Oh, stay. Three lives in one flea spare. Don't kill the flea, because you'd be killing three beings. Um, what are the three beings? The two of them. Plus, the, flea. Plus the flea. Um, 
Oh, stay three lives in one fleet spare, where we almost, nay, more than married are, um, because we're not just married, but more than married within the fleet. Three lives, what is that reminding you of? Yeah. Um, so what do we make of that, the sudden um, theological view of the flea as the trinity? <laughs> that could be the beginnings of a parody of a love poem that compares sex to meeting God. Okay, yes. Um, element of it. And compares a flea to meeting God. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, or the blood of all of us, like, the sit, like when he sacrificed himself, are we're part of, we're all part of the trinity. Or yeah, well, the blood of the lamb or the blood of the flea in this case. Um, so, oh no, I can't believe you're going to... It's sacrilege. You're going to destroy the Trinity by killing this flea. <laughs> um, so sex between us, we're like two persons of the Trinity. The flea is like the third person um, of the Trinity. Maybe the Holy Ghost, the dove, the winged flea. Um, so leave it alone. Oh, stay three lives and one flea spare. So she's about to commit terrible sacrilege. He says terribly sacrilegiously. <laughs> um, where we almost name more than married are. This why? Because this flea is you and I, and this our marriage bed and marriage temple is. So it's the flea is both the two of us and our marriage bed and the place where we get married, our marriage temple. So it's all three of those things as well. Though parents grudge, so our parents don't want us getting together, or maybe your parents don't, and you, so who else is grudging? Yeah, yeah he has to kind of admit that, though parents grudge, oh, and you too. <laughs> we are met and cloistered in these living walls of jet. So what are the walls of jet? The flea. Yeah, the flea's body. It's black, so its walls are jet black, and um, cloistered. Chastely yes, we're in this monastery or nunnery or cloister um, that the flea's body um, uh, constitutes. That's why it's the marriage temple. And here we are, we're met there, cloistered in these living walls of jet. Though use make you apt to kill me, though it's normal to kill fleas, um, and although you've always treated me badly, that is, um, you're, you know, you do it all the time. Um, you're used to being mean to me, though use make you apt to kill me. Let not to this self-murder added be. So if you kill the flea, what else will you be doing? Kill yourself. Yeah, I mean, really, that's a terrible sin. Self-murder? Are you kidding? I mean, I know you want to kill me, but don't kill yourself. And sacrilege. Three sins in killing three. So what's the sacrilege? Killing the holy flying flea. Yes killing the Holy Trinity that this flea now symbolizes. Um, so, really, be a big mistake. So what does she do? <laughs> yeah, she kills it. Cruel and sudden. He can't believe it. Look at you, cruel and sudden. Hast thou since purpled thy nail in blood of innocence? So what happens? Yeah, and her nail is purple now with the flea's blood. Yeah, and her blood and his blood. Oh, I can't believe you did that. Uh, what's the theological joke here? What nails are purpled in the blood of innocence? Nails that were nailed into 
Uh, right. The nails on the crucifix. So look at you. It's like you've just crucified Christ. <laughs> can't believe you killed this flea. It's like no, killing it's God. <laughs> Cruel and sudden. Has thou since purple and yellow blood of innocence? Because the flea really is innocent. In what could this flea guilty be except in that drop which it sucked from thee? So the one thing that it did was the drop that it took from you, but you're claiming to be a good person, so how is it guilty of anything? So what does she do then? She says that they are the same, like they don't, she doesn't feel any different because she killed the fly that has her blood in his. Yeah, so she responds, ha, you're a fool, um, I don't find my, myself and I don't see you any weaker now, even though I've killed the flea. Didn't put a stop to your saying sleep with me. Um, you seem just as importunate as you were before, which is true. Um, yet thou triumphst. Triumph there means, anyone know what that, the word means there? It's not quite like um, the... Um, uh, patriots did not triumph last weekend. Uh, you, what does it mean? You continue to say that... Yeah, so to triumph is to give yourself airs. It's basically to say, nah, nah, nah. Um, so it's, it's to, it's to um, display the fact that you've won. Um, that's the literal meaning of a triumph. It's um, when you lead those you've defeated captive through the streets of Rome. You are triumphing over them. So it's not that you're showing that there was a triumph. That actually is the triumph. Um, is the display of the fact that you've won. So she's saying, ha, you're wrong. I killed the flea, and I don't find myself nor you any weaker now. And that's where he thinks she's fallen into his trap. Tis true. You're right. Then learn how false fears be. You should fears be. You shouldn't worry. Just so much honor when thou yields to me will waste as this flea's death took life from thee. So when you yield to me, how much are you going to lose? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. It's just like, you know, the flea bit you. It was fine. Um, you think it's not holy that our blood's mingled in the flea? You think it's no big deal? I agree. <laughs> <laughs> no big deal for our bloods to mingle. Um, so let's do it. Wow. <laughs> um, so again, so... Yeah, so Jamie, you still think it think of it as progressive. I think so. Yeah, no, I agree. Um and it's you know, it's treating her as someone who will get his jokes. What he doesn't do, which a lot of people do do, is make jokes that are supposed to be over the head of um the person at whose expense they're being made. Um his jokes are never or almost never at the expense of someone who won't understand that they're jokes. Um, he's always joking with her rather than um, um, beyond her. Um, let's look at one more. So this, the one, um, well, let's get, I, I want us to look at Love's Alchemy, but we won't look at that right now. Um, but that could be a, that could be regarded as a very misogynistic poem and therefore worth starting with on Tuesday. Um, but let's look at, um, uh, on page 90, Go and Catch a Falling Star, one of his most famous poems, and one that's always puzzled me. 
um, partly because it seems clearly ambiguous if that's not an oxymoron, or even if it is an oxymoron. It seems clearly ambiguous, but it's, for me, hard to say what those ambiguity, exactly what the ambiguity is. Um, but it's also a beautiful poem. Um, everyone loves that first line. Um, you know, it's one of the great first lines, go and catch a falling star. Um, Daniel, you look like you want to read it. Uh, I knew you did. I thought so. Go and catch a falling star. Get with child of mandrake root. Tell me where all past years are, or who cleft the devil's foot. Teach me to hear mermaids singing, or to keep off envy singing, singing, and find what wine serves to advance an honest mind. If thou beest born to strange sights, things invisible to see, by ten thousand days and nights, till age snow white hairs on thee. Thou, when thou returnest, Wilt tell me all strange wonders that he saw thee, and swear nowhere lives a woman true and fair. If thou finds one, let me know. Since the pilgrim, pilgrimage were sweet, yet do not, I would not go. Though at next door we might meet, though she were true when you met her, and last till you write your letter, yet she will be false ere I come to two or three. Thank you. Um. So, if you were to summarize it in one line, what's it saying? There is no true woman anywhere in the world. There's no true woman anywhere in the world. Yeah, my time is really long journey, and then I Yeah. Maybe two or three. Well, there's that question, maybe two or three. But um, what is it easier to do than to find... Sin. Sorry? Sin. Okay, yeah, well, it's always easier to sin. But... Um, What's the hardest thing that the addressee of this poem is asked to do? Like, he has a choice of things to do. What's, um, what's the least likely to get success? Catch a falling star. No? <laughs> Find a woman true and fair. Yeah. It's easier to do what? Catch a falling star. Right. Or? Or? <laughs> oh, you skipped Tell Me Where All Past Years Are. Oh, sorry. Um, or who clapped the devil's foot, um, or to hear mermaids singing. What 20th century poet picked up on that? T.S. Eliot. Uh-huh. Line. Line? I heard the mermaids singing each to each. Mm-hmm. I've heard the mermaids. I do not think that they will come. That they will sing to me. Sing to yes. <laughs> you did? For what? Was, for you. I, for me? You I remember? I did it for you and for close reading, theory and practice. Okay. That's... I mean, I. <laughs> <laughs> you forgot the line. I forgot that you memorized it for me. That's fair. That's fair. Okay, so it begins. Oh, now I remember. Yeah. Let us go, then you and I, when the evening will spread out against the sky like a patient ever eyes on upon a table. On a yep. Table. Upon a. All uh, right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and um, Eliot is largely so that's T. S. Eliot's love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. And it ends, we have lingered, um, it's, it's, I've heard the mermaids singing each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. Um, Eliot was one of the people largely responsible for recovering Dunn in the 20th century. Um, Eliot thought Dunn was really, really great and um, that people should be reading him. And, um, and we are. Um, so, and he's clearly thinking of that. 
So um, there's some great lines there, and they're very different from each other. So go and catch a falling star. That seems like a great thing to do. That's like a refrigerator magnet quote, um, inspirational. Except here, what it means is you can't. Um, but it's still a lovely idea. Go and catch a falling star. Get with child a mandrake root because they look like they're humans. Um, that's the point about mandrakes. And they are said to screech if you pull them out of the earth. And it's bad luck. Um, but they're not humans. So you can't get one with child. Um, tell me where all past years are. Um, so what's happened to the past? Where did it go? Um, that's a pretty planchant question. Tell me where all past years are. Or who cleft the devil's foot. That's a kind of theological or um, mythical, biblical theological question. Why does the devil have a cleft foot? Um, teach me to hear mermaids singing, which we can't. Or to keep off envy's stinging. Hard thing to do not to feel envy. That's quite a little catalog there of impossible things. Um, and some of them are real life, some of them are not, and yet they're all impossibilities. And find what wind serves to advance an honest mind. That is, can you find a wind that will um, blow you to a good place, that will advance you um, in honesty? Um, and then, again, if thou beest born to strange sights, so, you know, catching a falling star, knowing who cleft the devil's foot, hearing mermaids singing, that's not that strange. But if you want, if you're born to really strange sights, to invisible things, um, the one sight you'll never see is a woman, true and fair. Why true and fair? Because there are true women and fair women, but not both. Right. Because the only true women are true because... They don't have any other choice. They're ugly? Yes. Yeah. They're, well, not it's the only thing they got. It's so you have no choice. Um, that because they're not fair, no one is sleeping with them. And therefore, they're true perforce. That's, um, Shakespeare makes the same... Um, Dunn gets, probably gets a lot of um, ideas from Shakespeare. Um, again, it's not absolutely clear, but it's probable. Um, and that's... Uh, um, an idea that comes up a lot in Shakespeare's plays. Think of Ophelia saying, could honesty, my lord, have better commerce than with beauty? Um, Ophelia talking to Hamlet. Um, they're discussing truth and fairness. Okay, keep reading. You have the latte assignment for the next couple of weeks. And um, we will talk a little bit more about this and go to Love's Alchemy on Tuesday. Do you anticipate that we'll read any of the holy sonnets? Yes, absolutely. Yes, no question. I have a question to ask you, actually, about the Billington Falling 